Hello, and welcome to Birdcast, the podcast where we explore the creative work of Nigel Neal, focusing especially on Quatermass, which is especially pertinent today because we're joined by journalist and cultural critic James Corey Smith for the final part of our discussion of the 1979 Quatermass conclusion, the final screen Quatermass story, which makes this Quatermass conclusion conclusion. This is Birdcast, episode 21. Actually, we haven't talked about Piers Haggard, um, director, uh, obviously best known now for, for Blood and Saints Claw. Yeah. From this edition. Had just come pennies up, from heaven. Had just come off Pennies from Heaven. Uh, of course, yeah. And we're, we're doing this as well. And the same agent as Nigel Neal. Same agent? Yeah. That's always very useful, isn't it? Yeah, which might explain him getting on, getting, 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 getting a gig very quickly after um, Neil agreed to him as well. Um, but also having just on pennies from heaven, that would be, you know, that would be a, a, a that you know, that was the biggest thing of his year, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, is is amazing. Also, although he'd worked in television, he had, as you say, he directed Blood, Blood and Satan's Law. He directed theatrically released films. Mm. So you know he worked he worked with single camera yeah um, single camera thirty five setups and done that pretty successfully visually um, you know so he's an interesting choice and I you know I I think a, I think a good choice I mean I think that I mean, Howard I know you have kind of issues with with Blood on Satan's Claw um, but few of the issues I have with Blood on Satan's Claw have to do with the actual quality of the direction. Yes, yes. And, and even Piers Haggard basically went, yeah, I wouldn't have done that rape scene if I hadn't had to do it again. You know, yeah. fair play to him. So one of the things you can say about Blood on Satan's Claw is that every every scene, even the ones with the crappy special effects, are is beautifully framed. And, and you cannot fold that. Atmosphere. Yeah, you cannot fold that part of it at all. It's just absolutely really well framed. And it's one of the reasons why even though I have so many issues with it, it's still, I've still managed to like watch it four or five times in the last five years because it's painless to watch. Even with all the issues it has. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say that, you know, I think that it's quite interesting because, you know, television is not, particularly in the, the then, it's not thought of as a director's medium, but mm. this by virtue of being a film for television in the way that many things described as a film for television are in fact, obviously not so um i think it it sort of it it does sit in a in a haggard canon as well as a neil canon you know um it is as yeah. much of a companion piece to blood on satan's floor as it is i think to the 50s quite a serials i mean it shares a composer with blood on satan's floor and obviously um i don't need to tell you guys that uh, blood on satan's floor is sort of considered to be one of the um the unholy trinity of, of folk horror as a genre, along with the Wicked Man and Witchfinder General, and, right. and Piers Haggard is is the man who coined the term folk horror. You know, this is, this is but um, but I mean, certainly certainly Haggard has said that uh, you know said on several occasions that his objective with Blood on Satan's Claw was to make a folk horror film. Folk so horror. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so so sorry, just trying to kind of. Bring I, I, suspect, I, I suspect some of this will be kind of snipped around and stuff. Is 
uh, so I think what I'm saying is, is that as somebody who would, who would deliberately set out to make a film that you could describe in that way, and who is certainly, I suppose, one of the kind of founding figures of any movement that existed, if it ever did exist, which it probably didn't, um, it puts, you know, Quatermass puts itself into, into that genre, into that subgenre by, by virtue of all of the things that it shares with Blood on Satan's Claw, which are down to it sharing Piers Haggard, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, yes. and, yeah. And, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and Mark Wilkinson. And although, of course, it's circular, because one of the reasons why you would get him to direct it is because it's a thing about stone circles and ruins and murderous cults of children and all of these things that wave into into things you know he's done well already anyway and supernatural extra normal forces yes because aliens and demons are essentially the same thing in these stories really yes absolutely yeah yeah he has that say he has that sense of landscape as well and the way he shoots i think quatermass is yes you can see is that the 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 importance of the land and the people's relation to it in, in in many ways like you know it's there i think probably more in in, in quatermass than 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 blood on Satan's claw there's like a um, a view of the land like those the post-war artists it's like oh, there's, yeah, there's a paul nash there's a revilius sale about there there's various shots of long fields and um there's sort of like you remember this bucolic thing you remember this bucolic thing? Well, well we're it's gone it's it's we're uh something's irrevocably changed i think there's a there's yeah. a danger yes. that he does it with that, 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 he, that he does with that and also the um the the it's not what it was but it never was what it was yeah nuts of it i think is is really important yeah um no, I, i've mentioned cut times but mark wilkinson's score uh divides people how do you guys feel about it the more i watch um the quite mass conclusion the more i like it uh, i was in fairly late convert to it and doing it this time i'm more favorable to it than when we when we first did it one thing i can't quite love as much as other people like you um is <laughs> i still can't quite sit with it the score uh is one of my one of my less favored moments to this as well and i'm not someone who gen i mean I, my favorite doctor who composer is carrie blighton it's like his um, his fun old use. No one can use a crumb horn like him as well. I, I just it doesn't sit in the same. It sits uneasy with me. The the, the score. What about you? Is it... Go on. Sorry, is... no, what was your follow up question? I I I'll, I'll be horribly honest. And actually, the score made very little impression on me. Ironically, <laughs> um, so it's not even the it And I I I it certainly added. I I, I think it was. <laughs> this is the worst possible thing I could say. I thought it was fine. No, it's great. It, it just great. fits. It fits, but it, you know, if 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 fits with the thing as a piece of its time, it's it's certainly not on the level of the score of Blood on Satan's Claw, which I think is one of the most unusual horror film scores ever made. Really, mm -hmm. I, I think. So, what what follow up question were you going to ask, Jim? Well, I, I was I was just going to say that. Um... Also said to you was like you know was, is it the orchestration of it is it the fact that it's entirely electronic or the way in it's electronic that you don't like or is it the I think it's 
I'm just intrigued. I'm not particularly, I'm not, this is, this, I find it dates, electronic score can, can, can date more. In the, and I'm choosing my words carefully so as not, so as, so as, so as not to appear hypocritical. No one way of doing it is, is always, is, is always the right yeah. way. Um, but the, the shift to having, say, in, you know, early 80s Doctor Who, just the radiophonic score, limits and dates it in a way. However, the best, the best scores from, from those days are among the best scores, best scores done in Doctor Who. But there's something about the electronic score doesn't fit with the feel. There's something about an imagined past and a broken future that doesn't really feel that, that fits with electricity being used to make this in a world where electricity is becoming a, an, in, an, in, an increasingly rare, 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 rare commodity. That's, that's how I, I, I actually disagree. I think that the, um, the broken future um, aspect of it actually works better when you have this very dated sounding score. I, I think that the date, the, the fact that alone of the thing it's the score that hasn't aged well um is is actually is actually to its benefit i could i could argue the script hasn't aged well even at the moment of its of its transmission but that's a, that's, that's, that's well that's a well well i thought i thought i think that's something we can talk about because i think the script's, yeah. a, the script's actually come into its age really well i think i mean yeah i think the thing about the script is you know we talked about what a long gestation it had mm. And it was seen as dated at the time. You know, you see um, TV Times and so on. People kind of are like, "What is this weird '60s nonsense?" Yeah. And you know, they are in a sense right because it, you know it is. Um, you know, it has been hanging around for a really long time. But as you know, it's set in a future from then. And I suppose looking back, we sort of. It's almost, you know, it's almost, I wish I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair, isn't it? You know, it's sort of, um, it, it, it's, this has all become foreshortened in the rearview mirror, you know, in, in the rearview mirror of Quatermass's taxi going through the ruins of London, presumably, is that um, it doesn't really matter now that they are sort of hippies, sort of punks, sort of the Manson family, you know, that, that sort of doesn't matter. You know, and um, because it, often it's a vanity of small differences thing, isn't it? You know, you look at what people were wearing five years ago and think they look ridiculous. You look at what people were wearing 25 years ago and it's just interesting and period. Mm. And probably in 1979, this thing conceived in the late 60s and largely written in 1973 probably did feel weirdly dated. I mean, it's, um, the, the way that in 1982, everybody thought flares were completely ridiculous. Yes. Oh, and in fact, actually, flares have been in fashion for more time than they have in, in the last fifty years. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's I mean, it's it's not like it's totally irrelevant, but it's just worth mentioning that this was written at a time that you know we were approaching sort of uh, the oil crisis. Um, we'd had you know we'd had the three day we'd had the three day week. Yeah, um, well, I mean, but it's but it's not like we weren't already. It wasn't like the late seventies wasn't in a. a um, a moment of economic crisis in, in, in the UK. It's just we're coming out, of, we're coming into a new era. We're coming into, I mean, Thatcher's just 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 taking power, and that's in in historical context. You can see it's part of, but at the time, 
you know, it's 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 dated to the extent that, as you've just said, five, from five from five years ago, can be seen as dated. But in you know, in a way that it you know, it can be compared easily to other seventies drama. This is a Quatermass that looks not dissimilar to Doom Watch scripts, or um, you know, some of the, some of the John Pertwee. This, this is the 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 pop, the eating itself um, circular nature because so much of quite uh, Doctor poetry Doctor Who is 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 quite a mess, but you can see this being more akin to something like the Green Death. Than you can, than, than, Another thing that came to mind around the time it was written, of course, um, Altamont and the whole sort of idea of like the collapse of the hippie era into violence, yeah, and things the Gimme Shelter era, um, mm. you know that Rolling Stones documentary where like the concert turns into like murder and everything, and for some reason. I was remo- for some reason that came to me for the first time very recently when I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about what to talk about when we we made this this podcast. But um, but yeah, I, I think it feels more contemporary now, and it feels like now in in an odd sort of way. I I think. But, but I mean, that's how I felt when I saw it in the mid nineties. You know, it felt very. Yeah. It felt very, um, as I said, Leveller's gig, criminal justice bill. Um, yeah. You know, it, course, it, felt, yeah. it felt of that era um, very sort of pertinent. And, you know, you, know, you talk about sort of recurring patterns and things. I find it really interesting that people often react to this like it's a winter of discontent drama because it was shown in the autumn of 79. But the winter of discontent, what hadn't just not happened when it was written in the early 70s, it hadn't happened when it was made in the summer of 78. So it's really not about that at all in any way. It it cannot be about that. Um, It's about the oil crisis. It's about the miners' strike. It's about Altamont. It's about Charles Manson. Um, But it can't be about the fall of the Callaghan government. It can't be. Um, it's not no. physically possible. Um, I mean, I think there's a in- really interesting detail in the novelization, which is that it's said that, because, you know, Quatermass lives in Scotland, mm. Quatermass is said that he went to the Scottish Parliament building in Edinburgh before he came down. And, of course, there wasn't a Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh until the late 90s. But what Neil is doing is assuming that the devolution settlement that was planned by the Callaghan government and was meant to be implemented in 1979 and 1980 has happened in the future he's creating, which I yeah. think is a brilliant detail um, on his part. I don't know mine. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of, I, you know, I find that really fascinating that there is an assumption, you know, yeah. in the same way that the, uh, it's true with the, the, the second series of Rumpole of the Bailey or yeah, the second series of Rumpole of the Bailey, which is, made at the end of 78 and not transmitted to the end of, until the end of 79 the government that is described in that program in terms of its attitude to um the law and order particularly and, and its attitude sensing guidelines and so on that 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 government is a continuing Callahan government that does not exist by the time the program itself is shown um it, it, it's like that but in a less ex- but in a more extreme form than 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 Rumpel, but you were going to say 
about how it felt now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Sorry. I, I agree with that. No, 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 all of these are in fact actually entirely um, valid points and are good framing points for the ideas I had because I know, and I think, I think you too, in conversations that we've also had, um, we, we, we sort of have a kind of feeling that it might be relevant to something that rhymes with eggs sit and <laughs> in, in the way that you have these sort of collapses this collapse this sense of decline this sense of a sort of weird kind of mass hysteria that's leading to a radicalization well i mean when all I, of this when stuff I, when i rewatched it about a year ago before the first go of this um <laughs> Obviously, so we were in a slightly different place politically, socially then than, than now. Things change so quickly and also don't change at all at the moment in that strange way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I remember thinking that like at the beginning, because Quatermass basically has no idea what's going on because he lives in Scotland. And it, it is this kind of strange thing where sort of Quatermass gets off the train at Euston having been in an independent Scotland where everything is basically fine sort of walks into this post no deal London with uh, South African mercenaries instead of police where they've sort of successfully privatized the BBC and merged it with ITV and all they show is terrible game shows it sort of does feel it does feel a little bit like some people's dream I was thinking about this because I was watching um, watching something on all four um, the channel four thing because we don't actually watch live live television anymore but i was watching um the end of the end of the effing world by the way which is excellent and thinking of looking at some of the things that were trailing because of course all four being commercial thing you actually have adverts in yeah. your stream tv I've, i well i've been watching dairy girls this my wife and i've been watching dairy girls this last week so i've been bombarded with all of the same yeah. four adverts. <laughs> but adverts for you can terrible watch it, You can programs. watch it on Netflix, by the way, Derry Girls. Just you can. Only the first series. Oh, yeah, you want, they've got all three seasons of Humans on Netflix, though, which is good to know. I need yeah. to catch the third one. Um, I'm just thinking about the sort of thing that they have on Channel 4 now and how in the 1980s, Channel 4 was the place where you would go for a rare screening of a Jar Derek Jarman movie. Which they paid to be made. <laughs> which they had paid for. And, you know, and, and, uh, and, and like serious programs about art and stuff. And now Channel 4 produces, and it does produce decent drama, like things like Humans and The End of the Effing World and Dairy Girls is funny, but it also produces, you know, Big Brother was broadcast on Channel 4. You know? Well, it's, I mean, the thing about looking through all four is, you know, you see... Um, you can sort of see sedimentary layers, yeah. Uh, because the because the program is programs are just organised either alphabetically or by genre, but not historically. You can see these weird, as I say, like sedimentary layers of the different eras of of Channel Four, just kind of nestling against each other like layers of rock. And you can sort of see the the representative programming. You sort of see comic strip, and you can see Dennis Potter, and you can yeah. see this the dispatches on Gulf War syndrome and you can see, 
there's some like wonderful sitcoms and then you can just see endless 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 documentaries that have rhetorical questions as the title that you cannot possibly imagine watching under any circumstances you know you can sort of see the jeremy isaacs era and you can see the michael grade era and you can see the michael jackson era and all these yeah it, it, it is really really odd um to sort of look at it and and it is it's a it's a strange old it's a strange old landscape appropriately enough um, but it, to look it's, at it's, to look it's, at all. it's weird how representative that have the, the 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 way in which the television on Quatermass is represented, <laughs> yes, um, reflects the sedimentary layers of Channel Four. Yeah, the tittity bumpity or whatever it's called. Yes, because yes. you know, I mean, within context, you've got presumably that's the uh, uh, corruption of the the Ringstone Round song, is it? Or tittity bumpity show is? Where does that come from? Is that? Is that a corruption in way of the ringstone round? I no. think that's uh, that's never occurred to me, but that's actually I like that idea a lot. Okay, <laughs> I started I started saying that thinking that was a universal truth, and then everyone's no, not at all, not at all. Ah, no, okay, but no, that's actually excellent. That's an excellent yeah, no, point, that's John. really good. That's great. Yeah, because I, I started singing "Tittity Bumpity Ringstone Round." Um, ah, no, to, no, it's, it's, that never occurred to me. To me. And but because that's because I fucking hate that song. That, 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 that doesn't doesn't convince me as a and I know that there are people that say oh yeah we used to sing that song when we were a kid no you bloody did Neil Neil made it up you like and it just and it, it is kind of awesome that people pretend yeah. oh it is absolutely brilliant yeah it's 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 like you know how many people told told Jimmy Greaves they were there on his debut about half a million uh, just Stamford Bridge never had that sort of capacity but it was um, I in a way that you would view um, what telly might become. He's already, I mean, as much as there's a big, big giggle, there's obviously the violence from Bam Pow's app. There's the, the telly that we see, which is, you know, has its origins in, 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 sex, in, 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 in sex Olympics. He's refined those ideas. But the idea we're also watching, a, you know, a live, a live broadcast from space that goes horribly, horribly wrong is um, equally um, and depressingly as, as precedent as, it's not like he, it, it's, it's comments about, but Neil, Neil knows the universal truths of people and his as well. And when you see, you know, when you see how telly will be, you understand, you know, where Neil, where Neil's coming from when you watch it. As far afield, I hate them. Do you remember the good old Bobbies? Good morning, officer, can you help me? My kitten got stuck up a tree. And they would help. But we lost them. Wrong. What happened? Was it the kids? Oh, Professor Bernard, what got into them all? With a blind rage in every land. As if we had to have it. When I was a girl? Years. Well, it really was different then. Well, you could walk in the open and not be afraid. You didn't have to hide your face from strangers. All these years. Dreadful years. Could have been on his way. Smashing things to smashing people. We tried to find explanations, and all we found were excuses, the faults of the system, the contradictions of society. Helming in. What? In these years, there'd be nothing. Just a final stage if it came far enough. Locating, probing, beaming. 
What was that you said just now? What got into them? Well, supposing it was that, whatever it is. Caused it? Is that what you're saying? Immense power approaching through decades. Decades to us, uh, a few seconds in some different, inconceivable time scale. I don't want to believe it. It's even worse. Don't believe it. Just suppose. Suppose. The interesting thing about the, the, the space disaster yeah. is like, there's no script version of this that predates Apollo 13. No. So people have right. seen... Um, that people have seen um, that, that happening. Um, I mean, although people didn't actually see it go wrong, um, the, you know, the, the Apollo 13 launch was on BBC One, mm. you know, so people had seen that had seen that rocket go up and seen those people get into it and then a few days later were told that it had gone horribly wrong so it's sort of i suppose it's just a more literal version literalized version of that a more it cinematic is. version of that experience it, it is although at least um, that, that has that has the, the, the other thing though to say the other thing's quite so, just, it, the other sorry. thing that's quite interesting is that um obviously it's related, again relates to the long gap between conceiving it and getting it made and shown is that when it was originally written, Skylab and the Soyuz uh, yeah, Apollo yeah, link up yeah. were both things that they were both things that hadn't happened. They were things that were going to happen in the future. By the time it's on television, they are things that have happened. Yeah, Skylab was seventy five, was it? It's seventy five. It's an interesting yeah, yeah. thing again. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yeah. again, of mm. constructing a future that's actually caught up with you in some ways by the time your show gets on. <laughs> I think that's a, that's is, a strange thing. It is. It's another, yeah. strange, it's another strange thing that happens between uh, conception and, and, and realisation is Star Wars. Yes. How, and how, how sci-fi is viewed. If, if we're, I mean, what, what's out in this is 72, 73. So you've got things like Solid Green, that's around that's that's a sci-fi show that comes comes out then is it as well um you've got slightly just you've got i mean you've got the slightly dystopian slightly um intellectualizing sort of future and uh, speculative fiction that, that sci-fi is in the early 70s but by 79 you've got adventure serials and cowboys in space and sci-fi is fun but considered trash by anyone who matters but considered box office gold by 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 people that count by the count the pennies and that how one views sci-fi or i mean this is term sci-fi it's got aliens and spaceships in it it's it's sci-fi uh and it's it, are people just going to be less forgiving for intellectualizing theory themes and ideas that can be explored than they are just i want i want lasers and i want robots i think that i think that's probably true and i suppose there's also the parallel to that is that the thing that might save the perception and reception of, of, of this greater mass is that it also fits into this kind of horror genre but yes. that kind of home counties horror thing is declining as well mm. you know um very much hammer, so, yeah. hammer is is you know all but gone and you know amicus is is all but gone you know it, it is those things are 
those things are going to. So the, the, it's, it's a, I suppose in its original context, it's a, it exists in two genres, one of which is evaporating and another of which has changed beyond all recognition. Mm. Um, yes, indeed. I mean, this is the era where Glenn A. Larson really <laughs> starts making science fiction shows. <laughs> right. So this 1978, 1979, 1980, you get Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. Yeah. And Battlestar Galactica's pilot gets a cinema release as well. Yes, yes, it does, yeah. I saw it, I yes, think, I, I saw it, yeah. Uh, and I, I, think the, I think the yeah. Rogers opener gets a cinema release in some countries as well. Right. Okay. Also, also um, um, Space 1999 is theatrically released in Italy. Right. right. Did you know that? amazing disco theme tune. Indeed, yes. Uh, with a, with a um, well, the, the, the Italian version has a score by, um, by Morricone. Oh, because of course it does. Oh, amazing. Star Crash. Italian side. Yeah, the Italians have stopped making, stopped making horror movies and sort of like, well, they never stopped making horror movies, but they sort of segue into making sci-fi movies at about this time um, as well. See, I want to do an episode on Life Force because I think it, it justifies its its influences. And, yeah, I yes. might like to do an, an episode on um, Prince of Darkness because there's, there's, there's huge influences there. I really want to find a way of shoehorning to do an episode on Star Crash. Um, but I need to, to, to I, uh, one for I the next know. April, I think. What, is it, is it, maybe one for the next January to do a birthday episode. I don't know, I can justify um, as, 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 as well. Um, so, did this actually get a theatrical release? The Quatermass Conclusion? I think it was on the bottom half of a double bill in America. That was it? I, I think so, yeah. It, it, um, it got, um, I'm not saying it went straight to video, but it certainly had a relatively early video rental era, rental release of the short version over here. Uh, but I, I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever found its way into cinemas in the UK. Or any overseas sales, because presumably, the, as discussed, that's why it was shot on 30 millimeter, 35 millimeter, sorry. Yeah, though I also think it was about um, it was about making it. I think it's the kind of thing it was. The clarity of image is important in a way that it isn't if you're driving a Ford Cortina around the back of King's Cross. Do you think um, it might have been in more interesting done in done in done in sixteen millimeter? Would it have been slightly murkier? Would that have been creepier? No, I think, the clar I think the clarity is important, actually. I think that, okay. I think that, I mean, we benefit now with, you know, uh, HDTV in every home. Mm. I think we benefit hugely from, from that excess, maybe. I, you know, I think it looks, I mean, the Blu-ray looks amazing, and it really does. Um, um, no, I, I think, I think it's very rare that you, I think it's very rare are the occasions when something would be better if it had been shot on lower quality film. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's one of those arguments that reminds me of like of like indie music arguments of the early years of this century, where people are people are really really into the fact that that I don't know John Dynell and the Mountain Goats produced an album on 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 an old sort of like twenty quid boombox, and and actually 
Actually, no, it's, it's almost unlistenable. But... <laughs> well, it's a, 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 a radio producer I know was saying how one of their colleagues said to them, um, this is, again, the best part of 20 years ago, oh, we're going to do, we're going to remake some Paul Temple serials from the 1950s, but we've got old mics and we're going to record them on tape so <laughs> they... Um, <laughs> So they, you know, they're more kind of of the of the period. Isn't that kind of great? And my friend was sort of holding their tongue and just thinking, that's just a terrible thing to do. <laughs> you've, yeah, why you've would got, you do that? You, you've, you've got the scripts, you've got the music, you know, you can direct the actors to play it a certain way if you want. But, you know, what you want a worse microphone? This is why... <laughs> If you, yeah, want to, if you really want to remake Paul Temple as it as, as as it was, just get just get your producer blind drunk by eleven o'clock and then see. Okay, <laughs> I mean, of course, of course, the maddest thing about that sort of like thinking is, of course, if the people making it at the time had access to better microphones, they would have used them. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. Is this another um, to, to where we where we stand on um, retconning Doctor Who with animation and updated special effects? And, and, and like, like, like many things, Doctor Who is a, a gateway drug into um, wider arguments. Um, but generally, how we, we, we remember things, do we improve them? And Star Trek has done this with Blu-ray, hasn't it? Star Trek has redone. Um, yeah, although model, it's, model it's, it's optional. Right. No, optional. Yeah, but the, the special effects are optional on, um, on, 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 on Doctor Who, I know. But yeah, for, I, I, mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a history of the book person on the quiet and I think that sort of textual history is a thing and we don't necessarily realize with younger media that textual history is a thing with them as well you know and any any 19th century novelist who kept control of their work um, but like Dickens particularly used to repunctuate and re-edit um, all of his novels as they were reprinted, um, you know, a, yeah. a, across his lifetime. And um, and they would be the only versions available. You know, there was no, there was no, oh, do you want a branching copy of Great Expectations where there is or isn't a comma in the last sentence? It was just, you're going to buy the, you're going to buy the most recent version. And for the whole of Dickens' lifetime and for the whole of, Dickens' work being within copyright, you could only buy the last versions that he signed off, and and that's true of any, as I say, any nineteenth-century novelist who who kept control of their own work. I'm suddenly and... drawing a comparison between Dickens and George Lucas. I was, oh no, I, I was, I was going to, yeah, I think that was going to make that point of what, absolutely, of, 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 of I, what price a seventy-seven cut of Star Wars? Yeah. Well, it, 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 and it's exactly that, and. Um, you know, um, once Dickens died and once his work fell out of copyright, it entered a it entered a um, a process where now every edition of every Dickens novel is edited from all of the various versions and some from the manuscripts and some from uh, and people provide their own composite versions and and that's what textual history is. This goes back it's, to Frankenstein. In fact, well, Mary Shelley well, did that too. And and, and, and further and further, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. They're all they're all composite versions. You know, uh, um, some Shakespeare plays we only have one text of from the period. Others we have two or three. And when 
we do have two or three people tend to reconcile them in in editions you know um you make editorial decisions based upon your own editorial processes and standards that that's just what happens with textual history and we are in a period with newer media with films and, and television where we're going through all that process and Lucas is like Dickens imposing himself on his older work um, in a way that I personally think both of them have like an absolute moral and, and certainly legal but I mean I think they have an absolute moral right to do because in this moment they I think they are more important than we are to, to that to that text you know um, You know, I appreciate all the arguments about signals and receivers. You know, I'm not averse to sort of semiotics in, 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 in as, a, as a theory in theory at all. It's a tool I like using. But I do think that at the moment, you know, they are the signal and we are the receiver. And sure, they receive back from us. But I think the signal they send out is, is stronger. You know, once Lucas is gone, as as Dickens is gone, is that people will be people will be assembling their own versions of his films. Eventually, um, we will be getting those composite versions because that that's just what happens. That that's what textual history is, and I think that the me those media are a bit too young for us really to sort of for it to feel right. And the other thing is is that it's a lot easier to watch a film so many times that you can sing along to it than it is to read a book so many times that you can sing along to it. If you read Oliver Twist once in serialization and once 30 years later when you buy the final edition of Dickens' Lifetime, you're not going to notice that the cliffhangers have been cut out. But, yeah. if, but if you watched Star Wars 20 times as a child, you're going to notice that there were new bits when it's when it's released you know um and and i think that i think that's uh you know there's a there's an emotional context to that don't mess with it that that comes from seeing along um the, co uh, the, the comes from the personal journey that you've had and and the, the yeah the the golden the, the the glow of childhood and the things that the things yeah. that ma mattered to you Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sort of the, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any way not guilty of it, of it myself. Um, although I could have tried to be kind of hyper aware of these processes, but the Star Trek six in Scope Country is a film which had a shortened theatrical cut because Gene already objected to certain things, and even though he was dying, they chopped them out to placate him. And that version was finished. And then when it came out on VHS, they put out a version which hadn't had the things that offended Gene Roddenberry chopped out of it, but which also had not had some finishes done to it that were done after they chopped the bits that offended Gene Roddenberry out. Oh. Now, the version that I know, the version that I can sing along to, is that VHS version. You cannot get 
that VHS version except on VHS because the DVD version is the longer version but with the finishes added to theatrical version added to it and a couple of extra changes that Nicholas Mayer would have made had he had time. And the Blu-ray is the theatrical version with the bits that offended Gene Roddenberry chopped out of it. So my preferred version of Star Trek Six The Undiscovered Country is not available. But I am very well aware that it is my preferred version. <laughs> and that there's sort of, there's no moral, I have no moral right, I have no, there is no force behind my desire to have that version, except that that's the version I can sing along to. And having and this, sort of, the self-awareness and humility to, to know where you sit in this, in, in, in that circle, is which basically sets you apart from the animals. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, well, well, well that's, how, that's very nice of you. <laughs> but you know, there, there is, and there is, there is that, that sense of entitlement. But and also, by the way, if you want a, a Blu-ray of the seventy-seven cut of Star Wars, I can, I can sort you out. This is that that doesn't bother me. No, that, that that, that's fine. Yeah, but that's, but it's no, it, it it bothers me, but only in the sense that I have a version I want to watch, but I don't have a God-given right to demand that that it is given that it, I, it is given to me. No, no. But the thing I, I find quite interesting is, is I mean, I, I've seen I've seen the original Star Wars. Um, more times than any other film. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I had it on VHS from when I was a very small child. And I actually, I, I personally regard, I regard all of the changes that have been made to it at various points as, as incidental, effectively. None of them seem to me to be editorially substantive they they don't they just don't bother me i i think i'd actually miss the java scene if i saw the film without it now really? but but because i think it's funny um are you imagining declan mulholland who by the way is a guy is a security guard in, in quatermass are you imagining <laughs> the, the, are you imagining declan mulholland in the part where they've clearly had to then put 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 Jabber as we now know him over uh, over I, I could see in that scene it, it's quite funny now I this the, the slapstick bit and I appreciate you know it's for we all fell in love with this story when we were five so it's it's hard to the now but having to like raise solo and have, have him tread on Jabber's tail with a funny thing or having to have Bob Fett look at the camera um just he doesn't, just he doesn't look at the camera he looks past the camera oh does he okay right but I mean I as I said, I, I, sort of, I, think, I think editorially they are, they are the equivalent of Dickens fiddling with the punctuation. Um, yes. And it, it's interesting to me that the overwhelming majority of the very large audience for that film doesn't care. To, to the extent that I have sat in pubs with people who've said, oh, I would really, really like to see it without the changes and I say you can get it on DVD and they say no you can't and I say yes you can you've been able to get it on DVD since 2006 and it's like you even the people who are complaining about it often don't care about it enough to spend six pounds on it at some point in the last 15 years um, 
which I find really interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to remember how, how cross I got. And the, yeah, but with, with, with a degree of self-awareness, Empire Strikes Back is the worst because it's the least changed. But they just have that really, they just, they redub uh, James Earl Jones after the, after the lightsaber fight when the original cut is just bring, it's just really grumpy and it's bring my shuttle. And it's changed to the slightly more dramatic but less effective alert the Star Destroyer for my arrival. Alert the Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival. arrival. And then they cut in a scene which is clearly from Jedi uh, of him arriving on what is clearly the Death Star. Uh, even to the extent that you can see Moff Jedrard uh, at the extreme right of the of the screen. Yet they've put that scene in for him arriving from back on the Death Star in the in the, in the, in the shuttle. Why? It's it because, doesn't, it doesn't... because they because the thing again there's I mean this is completely irrelevant to, to, to the subject. Yeah, happening. Well. But again one of the things I think is interesting is is that if you look at any change I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't wouldn't bet my house on a hundred percent, but certainly the overwhelming majority of the changes that have been made to those films over the years, if you dig back into the production history, you will find the moment when they couldn't do that in 1982. You know, you, you they are, they are, there is a strange sense in which it's not revisionism. It's always him finishing something that he was pissed off about then. Um, you mean he wanted to do in Empire Strikes Back? He wanted to do an, a, a, a model shot of of the shuttle arriving at the death on the Star Destroyer and couldn't do it, and now yes. he can fit it in because that's where he wanted it in the film. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And you know, and, and the, I mean, probably given how his mind works as an editor, he probably feels that it, it is needs, wrong yeah. that you don't that you that. That because there's no, that there's, there's, that there's no shot between Vader on Bespin and Vader on the bridge of the Star Destroyer. He wants, and that. also the the first time that you see him after that, it's just the close up as he kind of contacts Luke, isn't it? Mm, so yeah. there's ambiguity over where he is at that moment, and I think that's I think that's probably it's not a problem to us, but to him it's a problem he was trying to resolve in the editing in 1980. Mm, no, no, right. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that answers the why. Yeah, and it. I mean, they're not necessarily good reasons, but, but, they're right, but you, you can understand, understand the logic. logic. Yeah, yeah. In, in the yeah. same way that, you know, to go back to Dickens' repunctuation, part of Dickens' obsessive repunctuation is because he did not consider himself to be particularly well-educated and he felt that people mocked his punctuation. So as he got older and he felt more intellectually secure, he would go back and repunctuate his younger self's writing in ways that he felt was more respectable. But generally, editors prefer the energy of the thirty-five-year-old Dickens, not the not the sort of sixty-year-old Dickens yeah. copy copy book accuracy of the sixty-year-old Dickens. You know, um, but that yeah, that that's just that's just what. That's just what we do, and we just don't we don't know it yet about we don't know as a culture we don't know it yet about films and TV. I think that's 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 my that's we, my we TED talk still on, on that. Yes, yeah, that's my yeah, TED talk on, on the, the history of the book as it applies to 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 TV and film to, yeah. to TV yeah. and film. Why are they all so old? We've got to be. Old and crazy. I mean, to destroy that with a bomb. That 
I can't. What? No question. But you just sting it. Send a shock through its ganglia. It'll like a man who stepped on a hornet. That's all. Give it a zetse. As, as collaborative media anyway in a lot of ways in ways that books aren't it becomes there there are certain other layers of complexity as well yes yeah absolutely but you know ultimately sort of i mean i think one of the things with with star wars is that it's kind of vertically integrated in that although obviously lucas has collaborators he co-wrote and directed at least some of and produced and paid for all of those films yeah. so he sort of he has complete legal ownership and he has a sort of a practical ownership as well even the ones that are in some sense written or directed by other people and it is yeah it is very much in some sense um there's there is this kind of integrated authorial thread which which is very very rare in film it, it, it's a cute it's a kubricky sort of level of ownership weirdly he's from um, the same sort of um same sort of milieu as kubrick and coppola and all those guys in that well respect. i mean him and him and coppola were were mm. were yeah. like that um there's a brilliant interview actually there's a i love the way lucas makes random cameos in interviews with coppola or any of his children because um because the families have been so close-knit over the years there's a there's literally i don't think the person who edited the interview knew what it was but I remember Sophia Coppola talking about the Virgin suicides, and right. she was talking. She was talking about a particular a particular thing, and she said, "Oh yeah, and there was this thing where Uncle George suggested I did it this way, wow. and and about the editing, and the in the magazine it didn't have brackets Lucas, Lucas after it, but that's who she's talking about, Uncle George. Yeah, wow. um, you know, there's a there's a thing of um there's a similar thing with an interview with Coppola a couple of years ago where he's talking about his various contemporaries and projects and, and all these people who are still going and he says at this one point they're talking about different ways of doing things and he, I can't remember how it comes up and he just says he says I hope George isn't offended by me saying this because I love George he says but I wish he hadn't been swallowed by Star Wars. He says, not because mm. I don't like Star Wars. He says, but Star Wars being what it is, lost me 10 or 12 other George Lucas films that I would like to have seen. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah. which is uh, um, again is a really interesting. And then he caveats again. It's he caveats it again just to make sure that the um, that whoever reports it doesn't cut it across negatively. Yes. But it's, so if you cut the beginning or the end off you still wind up with a caveat you have to cut the beginning and the end off for it to seem critical. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I don't think he's got a point because let's face it, the two films he made, the two important films he made before Star Wars are both more interesting than Star Wars. Well, they are also, though, they are also half of Star Wars each. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. The, the, the THX-1138 is very much the world and the, the Imperials and their... Uh, American graffiti is the is the fun bits. It's yeah, it's hard so it's, it's um yeah. you know I mean I, I you know I think that yeah it's it's there is another Star Wars trilogy and it's THS one one three eight American graffiti and Star yeah. Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, None of this is going, but it's good, isn't it? No, it, it is. <laughs> but um, should we should we draw things to a Quatermass conclusion by saying well, that of the um other than the collapse of uh, the, the fast approaching collapse of civilization, are there any things, lessons we can now learn from, 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 from this production? I mean, I feel, I feel we kind of haven't really hit what, what it is I, I like about it. You know, I think, I think I've sort of failed to express that really. I, are we going to have to do a, another hour in a couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, um, I mean, I suppose what I want to say about it is that I, I find it, I find its bleakness atmospheric. I think it's beautifully made. I am, yeah, I'm very interested in the intergenerational tension in it. Mm-hmm. In that, I when I first saw it, I, I said earlier, it felt very relevant to me in when I first saw it in the, in the mid nineties. Um, but I very, very much, it felt reactionary in some ways to me that, you know, the, the fact that it's this thing about the, about youth being dreadful and they have to be saved by, by their elders. And, you know, when you're 17 or whatever, that is the last thing you want to be told. Um, and it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite marry up because of the sort of the st- weird stretchy time of it, of it being mm-hmm. sort of written in the early seventies and about the late sixties, but made in the late seventies and set in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, it has, it has a very odd relationship um, with, with its own history and with real history. Um, I do think sometimes that, you know, I mean, yeah, Neil, hated hippies um if if when i mention nigel neal if i ever mention nigel neal my wife does an impression of eric cartman shouting i hate hippies um as like a pavlovian response um there are times now when i look at this and i also look at other other things in that in that same by Neil and by his contemporaries that do that, where I do wonder if it's if it's inter, intergenerational tension is specific rather than generic. It, it sort of is. It's not an old man criticizing young people. It is a critique of the baby boomers by one of the war generation. And 
I think that to me is the thing about it that I sort of am most interested in now is that it sort of seems predicated on a fear that sort of the baby boomers are massively irrational and selfish and the fact that it's kind of done the fact that it's done top down rather than from our perspective bottom up doesn't necessarily invalidate the um the rigor of of the critique you know and and I, i sometimes think it's not an old man shouting at a cloud actually i think that it's it's somebody who is not sure about the generation below them for specific reasons and perhaps their specific worries have turned out to be founded you know um i have often suggested that if kickalong hadn't been killed uh, at ringstone round you know he would now have a column in spiked actually a final final question is there a reason that this is that this is forgot a largely forgotten piece. Well, I mean, largely in the in the context of it's not what Neil's best remembered for. And if he is remembered for Quatermass, it's the people being remembered the the, the Cartier Quatermasses or the three three hammer. I mean, it is it is separate. It is distinct. Um, it does not really fit. That that is true. Whether it's forgotten or not, I couldn't say. I'm not really. I'm not really a terrific judge of these things, you know. As um, what's yeah, what's remembered by us is not necessarily what's remembered by yeah by by by, by others. It still amazes me that you know, Judith Kerr said to Toby Haydock, "It's just nice that to see someone remembers Nigel and the idea of that being having to be a factor." It's wild, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. it so, is. I mean, that's that's bonkers. Yeah, it, it's it's like it's like Frank Skinner saying that. He really, really likes Doctor Who, but he wouldn't necessarily call himself a hardcore fan because he couldn't tell you the production code of every 20th century story off the top of his head. Only some of them. <laughs> and, meaning, and meaning it. And meaning it. Well, that's ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd, have a, I'd have a good stab. But, um, but yeah. That, it, it's, yeah, what is what is being remembered what is mm-hmm. what what is key what is canonical if you like it in in the more important and broader sense yeah um is fantastically to you know we're 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 far too close i think to to the material to judge i mean i can make a case for why it shouldn't be forgotten you know mm. which is um you know, we sort of said earlier that he was Neil wasn't happy with some aspects of the production, and later said he was never that happy with his original idea, which I'm, I'm not sure I really believe because, in some form or other, he fought to get it made for so long and in so so many different forms. Like, you know, he must have felt there was something worth saying there. Um, but I do think it's his last major original work. You know, he, he had. Yeah. He had lots of great things ahead of him as a writer, but they are principally adaptations. You know, the, the Women in Black and Stanley and the Women and, and so on and so forth. You know, they are, they're big things, but they are not, they are not 
completely original works and and you know Mark Gatiss has sort of described Neil as inventing popular television inventing also sort of in some ways en- en- inventing authorship in television you know yes. be, and I think there's something kind of really appropriate about his last major original work being another piece of his first major original work for television, which is in some ways anyone's first major original work for television. You know, I think that that sort of bracketing is, even if it weren't brilliant, terrifying, fascinating, um, fills you with awe and pity, I, I really, really do think. Even if it weren't all of those things, it should be looked at and thought about and studied in in context in that context because it's it's important in that context because Neil is important to television. Birdcast episode twenty one was presented by John Deere and me, Howard David Ingham. Our engineer was Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening. Thank <music> you.